0: Bricks, bricks, bricks. All anyone can talk about in South Africa right now is bricks. And no, by bricks, I don't mean the incredibly terrifying construction mafia that currently has the country in its grip. We should probably be talking more about that and just about how many politicians seem to be, let's just say, affected by the efforts of that specific construction mafia. When I say bricks, I'm talking about the BRICS summit that is happening in Santin Johannesburg, Right now, as we tape 22 to 24 August. But it's confusing because so many people don't even know what BRICS is or how it works or what it does. And so many people without that knowledge don't really know what the potential of BRICS is likely to be. And so let's talk about BRICS what it is, does it even work, what is its true potential, and why is everybody so interested? Welcome to The Issue with Dan Corder, the show where we deliver you South African news with laughter and thoughtfulness. And on this week's episode, we're doing The Issue with bricks. As always, full analysis and conversation happens right here on The Issue podcast. But if you'd also like to see our analysis on YouTube, you can find the episode in video form there. Let's get into it. I love BRICS for one very specific, totally non-political economic reason. Which is that whenever I see or hear the word bricks, I think of one of the greatest filthy funk bangers from the 1970s. The Commodores, one of the greatest to ever do it. Let's talk about bricks. If you're wondering what bricks is and why it's called bricks, if you've just woken up from under a huge rock or a huge brick... BRICS is an organization of countries that in the late 2000s were deemed to be emerging economies with huge potential to become enormously powerful global economic superweight players in the world. Called BRICS for the first letters of the different countries' names, Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa. BRICS as an organization has been meeting in summits every year for the last over a decade actually. But never before has BRICS become such an obsession, such a top of mind talking point as it is right now. In the last few months, weeks and particularly days in South Africa, I've seen so many people online talking about BRICS when they are talking about what they are prioritizing when choosing who to vote for in the 2024 elections. There was a rumor going around that Herman Mashaba of Action SA intended to leave BRICS if he ever became president. Whether this is fake news or not, I saw so many commenters online saying, well, if Herman's gonna do that, I'm not voting for him anymore. Screw Action SA. So many South Africans believe that political parties' positions on BRICS will define or may have significant weight over whether or not they will support them in the next general election. There are so many theories going around about how BRICS could save South Africa and the future of the world order should be BRICS and maybe there should be a BRICS currency So let's start at the start. Why is there suddenly so much interest in BRICS, not only from world news media more than ever before, but also from everyday citizens of countries around the world, especially South Africa? It's pretty straightforward. Millions upon millions of people around the world in poorer countries are fed up with the world order and the economic order that has continually sold them huge promises of gaining wealth pulling themselves out of poverty, providing their countries business and trade and jobs and industrial revolutions, if only they continue to place trust and faith in the world economic order as it stands, with former colonizing countries and the United States of America at the top, Europe and the United States, so long as the promise goes You continue to trade with us. You let us make major decisions over your economic futures. You let us bring in our businesses and our industries and let us mine your resources and take your farmer's produce for our own. As long as you do that, it'll be better for you and better for your country. That's the promise that has been sold. And that's the promise that the whole poorer world has been forced to live under for decades. Particularly since the early 1990s when the Cold War ended after the Soviet Union collapsed. And there was really no option. America and the West had won. There was no trading alternative. There was no other major political or economic super heavyweight that could compete for your attention and your trade and your business. Could give you a better, fairer, more enticing and higher delivery deal than the United States and the former colonizing European countries could do. And people are tired. People have given up. People have seen through that false promise. And millions of people around the world are also fed up with America, the policeman of the world. Because even with the Cold War, ever since pretty much World War II, America has been the dominant economic superpower around the world. And they have been the arch meddler in all countries all over the place. America, over and over again, especially during the Cold War II, has picked winners, even in countries which do not welcome it, even in countries where The popular majority have voted for a particular person to lead them in a democracy. America has just chosen no, sometimes, often. America has installed dictators. America has propped up military coups. We know that from history, but we don't even need to read the history books. Just last year, former high-ranking US official John Bolton in an interview said that he has planned many successful coup d'etats in other countries. He said that. He just did. One doesn't have to be Brilliant to attempt a coup. Uh, I disagree with that. As somebody who has helped plan coup d'état, yeah, not here, but you know, other places, uh, it takes a lot of work. It's so revolting to listen to how secure and confident he is that he can say that with no repercussions. It's that American kind of like arrogance and insolence. He's not even pretending the traditional American thing of we're trying to help you, we're doing what's best for you by ignoring what you want for a country and just doing what we want. He's just saying. We do what we want. And people in poorer countries see that. They see this imperial, neo-colonial activity from America. They see the fact that tons of former colonizing countries still call the shots in economies of their former colonies, like the French and the British across Africa. And people are fed up. Mainly, the few people in these poorer countries who are benefiting from and getting wealthier from the West's economic and political presence are specific elected government officials who Western superpowers enrich in exchange for providing them access to good trade deals, mineral resources, easy labor, big business opportunities. That's all they see and nothing else. But what's different now? Because people have known this for a long time. What's changed? In the last decade or so, there has been a fundamental change in the economic landscape of the world. The rise of China, the rise of India into real global super heavyweights, particularly China, has suddenly meant that there are alternatives for trade partners for many poorer countries. And that's caused a whole lot of hope for an alternative. Suddenly, the idea goes, you don't have to trade with the US. You don't have to do whatever they want because you desperately need access to their markets and their money. You don't have to do whatever the European countries say. Because China is competing for all that same business. Russia's done it too. We've seen this all over Africa. Real powerful, effective and aggressive charm offensives from Russia and China trying to get business and trying to get political sway, attention and allegiance where formerly there was just the United States and the West. And with this spreading anti-American, anti-European, anti-imperial sentiment, people are now dreaming of an alternate world with a kinder dominant superpower on their side. And that's where BRICS comes in. So, what is BRICS? BRICS started as BRIC, And it started as an idea floated in a paper by an economist in the early 2000s, ironically working for Goldman Sachs at the time. His name is Jim O'Neill. He's still around. And he wrote a paper that became very popular very quickly. The paper was about four countries which Jim O'Neill saw had the potential to become super economic powers in the near to medium term future. They were Brazil, Russia, India, and China. Significant labor and natural resources, significant potential to explode economically. So in the paper, he got creative and he called them BRIC. But this was just an economist's paper. How did it become a full-blown political, international organization. In the mid-2000s, these four countries wanted to project an image of being open for business with huge potential and a really, really good set of countries to go into if you had money and wanted to invest. And so, from the mid-2000s, starting with a meeting organized by Russia, these four countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China, met and started to put in place Plans for some kind of international organization that would advance all of their interests together through shared cooperative work. In some ways, it was PR to raise the profile of these countries on the world stage, and in other ways, there were definitely genuine intentions to foster shared economic plans that could help. This really came together by the late 2000s when they invited their fifth founding member, South Africa. There were many countries that were considered, including Mexico. But in the end, South Africa was chosen for two main reasons it's understood to be. The first, enormous and extremely valuable mineral resources. And secondly, South Africa was seen as the gateway to Africa, the country through which socio-political influence could be spread across Africa, and the country through which more economic opportunities across the continent could be found. South Africa is much smaller than the other countries in BRICS, has far less international weight, but at least in the late 2000s, we were hosting the Football World Cup. Nelson Mandela was still alive. We had a lot more sway, and many more people listened to us than they do now. So, BRICS started having these yearly summits and meetings and discussions and tried to put in place shared agreements on how the countries could work together to open up world markets and economies in the future, year by year. So, what has BRICS actually been able to achieve? Well, it's definitely true that in the last 5 or 10 years, there has been much more economic activity between certain BRICS members. Brazil, in particular, has struck enormous deals and increased trade to the value of tens, hundreds of billions of US dollars, with China in particular. And some people like to credit BRICS with that, and it's certainly possible. But the truth also is that it might not be, because China, with all of its factories, the factory of the world, is so hungry for natural resources and farm produce, two things that Brazil has enormous quantities of. So it's enormously possible that China would have gone to Brazil with all their business to buy all of their minerals and lots of their farm produce anyway. But one thing BRICS has definitely done is created something called the New Development Bank. It's kind of like the World Bank. It's an institution that is basically a pool of 100 billion US dollars of foreign currency that all of the BRICS countries have contributed together and it exists to provide loans, kind loans, to member states in times of emergency. Super useful. South Africa borrowed billions of rands from this new development bank in 2020 to fight the worst of the COVID-19 pandemic. So that's something major that BRICS has created. And now, as we speak, as this summit is taking place in Sandton, Johannesburg, hosted by Cyril Ramaphosa, 23 countries have formally expressed interest in joining BRICS, All of these different countries like Indonesia, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Argentina, Cuba, Nigeria, Venezuela, Thailand, Vietnam, so many more. They all see joining BRICS as beneficial to them, as valuable, as something that would improve the economic and political standing of their countries. So BRICS must have some value. But the question right now, in late August 2023 is, what is BRICS's potential? Because that is what... People the world over, but particularly South Africans, are wondering. And that is why BRICS is suddenly such a big political issue for some South Africans thinking about who to vote for next year. So what is the actual potential of BRICS? What could it possibly become? Well, the answer is ah, the answer is messy and not good messy like Lionel Messi. It's 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 complicated. It's complicated messy. Here's why. As much as you will hear talk, endless talk, from all of these individual member countries of BRICS about how BRICS is hyper-important to them, and it might be very important to them, the truth is that all of these countries are ultimately, fundamentally self-interested, and BRICS is not at the top of any of their priority lists. Why would it be? Even with new members, BRICS can't come close to providing the kind of economic or socio-political incentives to make super-heavyweight countries, in BRICS or even lesser heavyweight countries like South Africa, make it the number one top priority. China and America squabble constantly. They sometimes have little trade, not even wars, but skirmishes. But ultimately, China knows that America and the EU is a massive and vital trade market and place to do business and make money for them. So as far as their kind of anti-American, anti-imperial energy goes, uh, it's actually not that far. India has got massive ties to Western markets too, provides tons of work for American companies and India's specific goal at the moment is to try and replace China as the place for wealthy businesses and rich nations to go and do work, to set up call centers and factories. They want to replace China as the factory of the world where everything good gets made. And India even has military ties to the United States of America because the U.S.'s strategy for pushing back extremist terror organizations is to provide military aid to countries like Pakistan. But Pakistan and India are arch-nemeses, hated, hated rivals. And so America provides military aid and support and tech to India also. So India doesn't have any interest in saying, screw the West, we're going to go full BRICS developing nations or Global South. Brazil is a great example of how ultimately countries are just large groups of people led by a few people. And when the people who lead the large group of people change, then the whole aims and goals and ambitions of the countries change. Jair Bolsonaro was president of Brazil and he had a very specific vision for Brazil and the world. And he has since been deposed by Lula, who's got basically the opposite one. And so Brazil is a great example of how Even presidency to presidency or through a leadership change, countries' kind of feelings about BRICS and what they want to do on the world stage change. Then look at South Africa. President Ramaphosa came out with a speech to the nation on the Sunday before BRICS started, where he re-emphasized that South Africa has chosen to be non-aligned in all of the spats around the world right now, particularly non-aligned on the issue of Russia and the Ukraine war, where South Africa is doing everything within its power to not pick a side so that the country can continue its trade and business relations with the United States, the EU, Russia, China, with everybody. That's in the best interest for South Africa right now. So beyond the fact that BRICS isn't the priority for pretty much all the countries within BRICS, there's also the fact that the BRICS member states also have very complicated direct relations with each other. Russia has been begging China to go all in and support it in the war against Ukraine, and China has obstinately refused to do that. They've provided some help, like cosplayed being friends, but China's got no interest in locking in step with Russia in, in Russia's endless fight against the whole Western imperial order. China and India have an unending border dispute, where the Chinese and the Indian governments are fighting constantly, and sometimes literally, by the way, with skirmishes between armed forces, with bullets being fired. They're fighting over a particular stretch of land on the Chinese-Indian border, and so it's not smooth sailing there either. So BRICS really is what it is. Then when we think of the BRICS organization trying to compete with the big international conglomerates of the world, the G7, the G20 and that, many of these BRICS nations don't want to do that either. Some of them are even part of these Gs. So ultimately, it's not really in the best interest or even top of the priority list for any of these BRICS member states to prioritize BRICS, and pull away from the West-dominated world economic landscape as it is right now. But now, just this morning, BRICS has got so much more interesting and so much more complicated. Because literally a few hours ago on, we're taping this on the 24th of August, the final day of BRICS 2023, BRICS announced that they are adding six new member states. And this is maybe going to be a whole new direction. For a whole new thing we know as BRICS. I kind of doubt they're going to try and make a new acronym because it's hard to make acronyms out of random letters, particularly when they're the first letters of countries. They got a miracle with the original five, but they now need to add to that Saudi Arabia, Iran, Argentina, Egypt, Ethiopia and the United Arab Emirates. This is a really interesting group of countries. First off, BRICS has managed to add some of the most powerful countries outside of Europe and the United States in the world because they have added some of the world's top oil producers, particularly Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. This is a really fascinating addition because this is Saudi Arabia kind of saying to the United States and Europe who they've given oil to and worked with for such a long time. This is them saying, we know how badly you need us, that you can't do anything about it if we also work with your enemies. They have literally joined an international body, an organization, a partnership, an alliance of countries which include some of America and Europe's most hated, feared enemies. Russia, for one. And now with Saudi Arabia, Iran, who has just joined. And China, who, listen, America doesn't feel great about, even though they work with them constantly. And beyond oil, Saudi Arabia also has absolutely enormous wealth to contribute to BRICS, maybe to the BRICS bank. It's a really, really powerful addition. But it comes with more really complicated, direct country-to-country, messy relations. Saudi Arabia and Iran have been fighting a simmering, quiet cold war through proxy battles in other countries for decades. And now they're both a part of BRICS. Iran getting in is a massive victory for them, because the US and Europe have systematically tried to isolate Iran, sanction them, undercut their economy for a very long time. And I'm sure for them this feels like getting themselves friends, pulling themselves back out of isolation. The United Arab Emirates, extraordinary wealth, extraordinary influence. And the other three countries also, like Egypt and Ethiopia, very powerful African nations with significant populations, economies, resources. But the choice of Ethiopia and not the African country with, in many ways, a huge potential economy. The African country with the most people of any country in Africa, one in six Africans, is Nigerian. The fact that Ethiopia was picked and Nigeria wasn't, I'm sure we are going to see that there were some direct rivalries, some tricky diplomatic ties between countries in BRICS and Nigeria which meant that Nigeria wasn't invited. Argentina is an odd and kind of surprising addition to BRICS, because yes, they're a massively influential South American nation. Them and Brazil essentially are the two powerhouses of that continent. But Argentina's economy is in crisis. They have huge loans and debts to try to wrestle with. They have a tanking economy. And so it's kind of a surprising choice to add them to this block. And I wouldn't be surprised if the BRICS banks helped out Argentina in a big way, in the coming months and years. Also, speaking about direct country-to-country complications and rivalries, Brazil and Argentina have been at each other's throats for as long as anybody can remember, on the soccer pitch, but also for influence over their continent, their economic region of the world. And now, Argentina is a part of BRICS, and Brazil was one of the founding members. So this announcement just this morning really changes BRICS, I think, fundamentally. It'll take a while for us to see how it does, But suddenly, this block, which already had China, India, Russia in it, looks very different. And it is very unclear what their potential might be as a unified body of countries. So then people will say, oh, but they can just make a new BRICS currency that will strip away power from the United States, that will create de-dollarization. So here's the basic idea. For the longest time... All international trade, or the vast majority of it, has happened in US dollars. And the reason why is that countries come with different currencies, which means that if you want to trade or buy or sell across a border to a business person or a government in another country, you need to switch currencies to trade with them. And so what you need is a common currency for both parties to use, and that has traditionally been the dollar. And that's simply because the dollar is one of the most stable currencies in the world in terms of value. Because everybody wants dollars because you get dollars by trading with and working with America, which is the economic superpower of the world. But being forced to trade in dollars can actually suck sometimes, a lot. Because what that means is that the US Federal Reserve that ultimately makes decisions about its treatment of the dollar and its own currency and its valuing of the dollar... They make decisions in America's best interest, but their decisions about the dollar affect everybody around the world who wants to buy and sell and trade in dollars. And it also means that if you're in a country that's having a particularly difficult moment with the US economy and your currency devalues or increases in value relative to the dollar, suddenly all of your calculations about what you can and can't afford for your trading change. Like overnight, if the rand drops enormously in value against the dollar, suddenly what you're buying from overseas costs you way more than before. Or what you're selling overseas suddenly will get you way less. And so there is this common resentment of the forced use of the dollar on world markets. And so people say, why don't we just create a BRICS currency, where BRICS member states all agree to do away with their own currencies and create a new common currency like the euro done in Europe, and that solves our issues with trading with each other across our borders because we're all using the exact same currency. There's no need for a common currency. De-dollarization. The thing is, though, and if you remember Jim O'Neill, the economist who came up with the concept and term brick, I mentioned him earlier. He actually this week was quoted and his exact word was saying that the concept of a BRICs currency is ridiculous. And whether you like him or not, agree with him or not on most points, Maybe not ridiculous, but it certainly seems incredibly unlikely that there will ever be a BRICS currency. There's just no clear reason why any of the dominant states in BRICS would want that. Because fundamentally what would have to happen is all of these different massive countries would have to give up power over their own currencies and then instead create some kind of central bank for the BRICS currency and the BRICS block of member states that use the currency. And they would have to negotiate which representatives from which country have which positions and more or less power. And there's just no reason why any of these would want this to happen. The Chinese significantly heavily regulate how valuable their currency, the B, is. Because they use it to help their local businesses and to stimulate economic trade. Maybe they devalue the B quite a lot so that it's more enticing to come and spend and buy in China or open a factory if you're from somewhere else. Why on earth would the Chinese want to give up on that fundamental pillar of the way that they have achieved economic success? They just wouldn't. In fact, what the Chinese really want is for more countries around the world to use the renminbi as a common currency instead of the dollar. They don't want to give up on their power over the renminbi. They want to develop an America-like power in the world economy. India with the rupee is the same. Russia with the ruble, same. There's just no reason that anybody could come up with why these dominant BRICS superpowers would want to have a common currency and give up all the power over having their local central or reserve banks control and regulate their own currency for their own markets. Secondly, getting into a common currency is incredibly risky because of the unpredictable nature of world diplomatic relations. Like if there was a BRICS currency and we were all in it, Suddenly, one member of the BRICS currency, hypothetically, the BRICS currency area or zone or block, Russia, would go to war, hypothetically, let's say, with like the Ukraine and the US and the EU would get very upset with it and put tons of sanctions on it. And Russia is even being excluded by those countries from one of the world financial payment systems. So say that happens, how would the sanctions work? Well, one thing is they would definitely affect the rest of the block, the rest of the zone. And that's not anything that any of these other countries want to deal with. China really doesn't want to get pulled into wars with the United States. They have shown that they don't want to sit on the side of Russia. India wants to trade with everybody. You don't want to get dragged into the politics and the mess and international relations of another country. And finally, a note of caution for poorer or less powerful countries in these economic blocks. Being in a common zone with a common currency can be incredibly dangerous for you. And the simple reason why is that once you become part of a common block with a common currency you are competing with all the other countries in that block for any business that comes in and let's go back to the way the devaluing currency can actually stimulate some kind of business in a country so when a country is uncompetitive or their economy is stagnant what usually happens is their currency devalues And because their currency is worth less, that attracts foreign business because sure, the country is uncompetitive, the economy has stagnated, but it is cheaper to do business there. And so companies from overseas bring their business and their money and overlook the inefficiencies because it's just such a good deal. That's really important for struggling economies to bounce back or to have some kind of benefit from a moment of difficulty. But if you have a common currency, then suddenly if you go through a stagnant or an uncompetitive moment, you don't get the help of your currency devaluing because what will almost certainly happen is the rest of the block will stay largely stable. And so your country, which is now just a region of that block, will just be the uncompetitive, unenticing one that can't get business. I'm looking at you, South Africa, while imagining us in the same block as a China, India, Brazil. And then after that, things can spiral so fast. And we know that this happens because we've seen it happen to Greece. Greece, part of the euro, entered the eurozone, had a fundamentally uncompetitive, stagnant economy. And suddenly, because they didn't have their own currency that would devalue and therefore make working with Greeks and working in Greece a better deal for foreign investors and businesses. Suddenly, Greece just had a euro that was largely stable, but they were uncompetitive. And they were trying to compete with hyper-efficient economies, much more powerful and big ones than theirs, like in Germany. And Greece spiraled could not get work, could not get business. And when you look at the BRICS nations and you look how superpowered some of these countries are, and then you think about South Africa, or some of these even smaller economies than South Africa that are looking to join BRICS, BRICS currency seems like a huge risk. So, what's the big deal with BRICS? Well, because it's suddenly all changed. It does definitely have some value to member states in terms of stimulating trade and common economic agreements. The emergency loans provided by the BRICS bank, for one, definitely, definitely powerful. We just now, as I'm recording, seen an announcement that they're going to try and loan 18 billion rand from that BRICS bank slash emergency fund to try and save Transnet in South Africa and fix our locomotive systems, which is incredible. And there's definitely also value for these countries in joining an organization which allows them to symbolically show that they want to be and are closer with the new economic powers of the world. The BRICS that we have known for the last 14 years of the original five countries and their yearly summits and a little bit of their development bank is over, I think. I don't see how it could stay the same with such a significant additions, not just because they've more than doubled the number of member states within BRICS, but because they've added some huge names who are very significant in global geopolitics and the world economic order. So what's the future of BRICS? I don't know but strap in because it's just become far more interesting, far more complicated and far harder to read. So that's The Issue with Dan Corda for this week. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please let me know what you think. The Issue is everywhere on all the social medias, on your podcast platforms, and the video version of every single episode also exists on YouTube. You can just search The Issue with Dan Quarter. Any queries, sponsorships, collaborations, all you need to do is pop us an email at Quarter at gmail.com and all of the links are in the caption of this podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Chat again next week.